Hey there, I'm Christopher Cardenbicus, and you are listening to Paper Cuts. Before we get into the episode, our first in our brand new season, I wanted to give you a few updates as much has been going on for the world of Paper Cuts. Um, this episode kicks off a series of live Paper Cuts discussions recorded at the Washington Project for the Arts, or the WPA, here in Washington, D.C. The WPA occasionally hosts an artist curator to organize and curate their bookshelves. I'm honored to have curated the current iteration of their bookshelf series and to have focused on zines, small press, and DIY publications by people along the I-95 corridor from Richmond to Philadelphia, and specifically within the DMV, the District, Maryland, and Virginia. In addition to the WPA hosting this collection of zines for people to visit, they have also been hosting a series of discussions and readings that have been recorded for this new season of Paper Cuts. This is a bit of a shift. If you're a longtime listener, you will know that Paper Cuts started in 2015 as a program on Clock Tower Radio, based in Brooklyn, but streaming online. Clock Tower provided a warm, welcoming, and collaborative environment, and I'm so happy to have been working with them while they were operating within the Pioneer Works art space in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Extra special thank you, and infinitely large bear hug to Jake Nussbaum, who is our producer there and helped shape what Paper Cuts has become. All the episodes that we recorded at Clock Tower are archived online at clocktower.org. Recently, however, Papercuts has struck out on our own. Um, Papercuts really started as a way for me to get to know my then new city of New York. Now that I've relo- relocated to the DMV, I'm very excited to be working with uh, people locally, people like the Washington Project for the Arts, which is an artist-centered and artist-driven organization in DC. If you're a longtime listener, you'll probably notice a sharp drop in sound quality since now that we've struck out on our own, I am actually doing all the editing myself. So this uh, program that focuses heavily on DIY publishing interests is now being produced in a very DIY manner. So you will be forced to listen to me learn how to better edit and record as I go. As such, any edits in the following few episodes that are recorded at the WPA will be edited um, very lightly but roughly, and, you know, hopefully I will be getting better very soon, especially since I have a lot of episodes to actually edit down. Um, The episode that you're about to listen to features a presentation and discussion with Brett Simnicht of Genderfail. Genderfail is currently based in Richmond, Virginia, and is a publishing and programming initiative featuring the perspectives of queer and trans people and people of color. You will hear more of a thorough introduction to Brett and Gender Fail once the episode actually gets started in earnest. Um, Brett came to DC and recorded this episode live in front of an audience at the WPA on February 16th, 2018. I'm recording this introduction in the spring of 2018 in my basement, and we still have two more sessions to go at the WPA. Um, I'm very excited to get started with this new era of paper cuts, and before we do, some quick thank yous. Uh, a really special thank you to everyone at the Washington Project for the Arts, especially Peter Nesbitt, Jordan Martin, and Natalie Von Bay. Uh, without them, without their, their efforts, this recording wouldn't have happened. <laughs> the Paper Cuts bookshelves would not exist. Um, so I really value this collaborative endeavor. And uh, another thank you to Jennifer Lillis, a graduate student at George Mason University, who is acting as our producer for all the live Paper Cuts readings. The music that you're going to be hearing throughout this episode and throughout the season of uh, Paper Cuts Live is the song Teeth Chunk by Jonathan Brodsky, who has lent us the use of his song since we started in 2015. Now, without further ado, let's all listen to Brett talk about how Genderfail produces, collects, distributes, and displays zines. Um, Paper Cuts as a program started in Brooklyn at Clock Tower Radio 
And through that series of interviews, I was talking to people who worked with DIY publications, zines, and small press. And we spun that out to a series of bookstore talks, uh, focusing on independent bookstores and comic stores and bringing zine makers into those spaces to have block events. So I'm very, very excited to be working with WPA to host this bookshelf iteration of Paper Cuts, which features both uh, people that I've interviewed in the past, and of those interviews, you can listen to them on the headphones there with the iPad, um, and people that will be speaking during a series of events that we're holding at the WPA. So the, uh, the bookshelves are up from today until July 5th, and we'll be running roughly one event a month with a whole range of amazing people. So keep checking the WPA website for updates as to when those are going to be scheduled. Um, before we do get started, I just wanted to thank Jordan, Peter, and Natalie for all their work here at the WPA. Yeah, big round of applause. Um, wanted to introduce Jennifer Lillis, who is a GMU graduate student and is the acting producer for the program this evening. So she'll be making sure that Brett and I keep our microphones to our cases and speak up. Um, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Brett Simnick from Genderfail, here visiting us from Richmond. And I'm going to read you a little thing about Genderfail. Genderfail is a publishing and programming initiative featuring the perspectives of queer and trans people and people of color. Genderfail looks to build up, reinforce, and open opportunities for creative projects that focus on printed matter. Genderfail invites artists, writers, and activists to create publications, prints, and programming to present through the platform. Uh, since its inception in 2015, Genderfail has presented work at MoMA PS1 in New York City, Ulysses Books in Philadelphia, Ulysses, which is also featured on our collection of podcasts. Um, after School Special in Milwaukee, and Sediment in Richmond. Their publications can be found at Printed Matter, Art Metropole, uh, Art Book at MoMA PS1, Quimby's Books, Verbatim Books, and more information can be found at their website, genderfail.space. Um, also, for tonight, you can actually purchase Genderfail books from Brett. Uh, they're on the, the long table here, and you can take those home with you tonight. Books that are on the bookshelf, you can purchase, but just like an exhibition, you cannot take them home with you until everything comes down in July. Um, so, first we're going to be doing is, uh, Brent is going to be giving a presentation, and then afterwards we'll be holding a conversation. So, I'm going to turn this over to Brent. Thank you so much. It's weird thinking that this is like a microphone, but it's not. <laughs> But yeah, it's really great to be invited to do this because I was telling a couple folks that I haven't really had an opportunity to hang out in Washington, D.C. Like my only experience is like driving through traffic and it's like nice to actually do something where I'll like leave feeling fulfilled and not frustrated. So um, it's going well so far. So for reading something, I'll kind of go into some of the projects that I'm doing like over like a publication that I release with another artist. But I thought I would... Um, uh, I guess do like a short reading of this um, uh, new publication that I'm working on. It's kind of a manifesto based off of um, this uh, project that I'll present after I read this called the Genderfail Archive Project, which I'm thinking of different ways of um, displaying and archiving and presenting publications in different spaces like libraries, galleries, um, and different kind of art spaces that um, aren't white cubes, so I'm, so I'm actually not trying to do it at galleries, but um, yeah, so I just thought since the nature of the collection and what's on display is different types of um, ways of making zines, so as you can see over there, like a zine isn't just one thing, because I think when we all think about what a zine is, we have like different ideas, or maybe you actually don't know, because I actually run into that a lot. Um, I had a book, Perfect Bound, by this printer, <laughs> and I said a zine, and they're like, what's a, what's a zine? You know, it's like being like, what's a zine? So it actually isn't as pervasive as I think it is sometimes but um, yeah I think this is like four pages I think I'll read the whole thing but I'm sure some of you had a chance to read most of it already but um, I guess I'll read it anyway um, a zine is informal a zine is stable bound a zine is an activist material a zine is made by a person or a group of people who have a need to express their concerns a zine is risograph printed a zine is a manifesto a zine is unimportant a zine is cheap a zine has a feminist history. A zine is intersectional. A zine is queer. A zine advocates, 
uh, advocates for people of color. Azine looks to inform the public about the prison industrial complex. Azine helps to address mental health. Azine is hyperpersonal. Azine is not precious. Azine can be easily destroyed. Azine is 4,000 sheets of 8.5 by 11 inch printer paper that you took from the adjunct office in your MFA program. <laughs> Azine is 4,000 sheets of paper that you printed on the black and white copier that you can use for free. Um, this next part, I've, I actually have been working with um, an undergraduate student to, to edit this, and she like put this part being like, we don't get access to this, like saying like in your in your approved department, provided that you're a grad student, which I might take out, but it's like, or maybe like you know, this these are my words. I don't know. I think it's funny, but anyway, and then using all the toner in the machine, preventing others from printing. There's another her edition, high stakes documents, um, which. Um, who knows what that is? Um, Azine, Azine is made using a long arm stapler that you keep borrowing from your friend instead of buying one yourself. I actually have now bought my own long arm stapler, even though I'm uh, making more perfect on books now. So um, Azine is free. Azine is most commonly a small circulation of self-published works of original or appropriated text and images usually reproduced via a photocopier from Wikipedia. Um, Azine is a form of resistance. Azine thanks God for abortion. Azine helps men unlearn rape. Azine is a lesbian utopia. Azine helps you disappear in America without a trace. Azine explained things to me. Azine is really shitty sometimes. Azine is homoerotic. Azine fucking hates Donald Trump. Azine is a hand guide to homemade revolution. Azine is the Holy Bible illustrated. Azine asks questions like who will police the police. Azine is something, is, Azine is trying to make the personal political. Azine is where Mimi's go to die. I don't remember that, adding that. Azine talks about guilty pleasures in the age of the problematic fave. Azine talks about sex, class, and race. Azine takes you into the files of a queer archiving project. Azine shows images of naked gay men. Azine talks about consent, baby. Azine is a testimonial for topics too painful to say out loud. Azine is a guide for intermuscular injections. Azine is an ex excavation into a library. Book of library. Oh, that's supposed to be deleted. Uh, Azine acknowledges depression, dysphoria, and anxiety. Azine is a guide to Azine Fest. Azine is in, in pursuit of the breakdown of capitalism. Azine is striving towards a connection of parts that remain foreign. So this is like a writing that's in progress. So a lot of the content of this is taken from actual like zines that I have in my collection too. So like really thinking about like the different ways that zines have been um, deployed as a, as a content generator. Um, so in this work, which um, I haven't released yet, so it's something I'm kind of striving towards. Um, I'm currently in my last semester of graduate school at Virginia Commonwealth University. So this is something that will be kind of released in conjunction with um, the Genderfield Archive Project, which I'll talk about in a second. So um, I you thank you for the introduction, so I don't really have to do that, but I was gonna introduce the project, but um, Chris did, uh, good job. So these are, um, this is just the home page of my website. So these are just like some images from different events that I've done. And it's been really great getting to know Chris, which we've only actually ever met at book fairs, which it's kind of funny in this community, like you only meet people at book fairs. Um, uh, a friend of mine who's an assistant professor at VCU does this project um, with another artist, um, Sarah, I always forget how to say her last name. I think it's Gottensteiner. Um, and it's funny, they started this collaborative project and they've literally only met when they've done like the LA Art Book Fair, the New York Art Book Fair. They've never met outside of those spaces. So it's interesting how this can be like a, how like the New York Art Book Fair or other book fairs can be a, a site of collaboration that only exists at those events. I just, that kind of blew my mind, but also didn't at the same time, because I feel like I have like a network of people that I see just at this, these events and it's, um, it's really wonderful. So I thought I'd talk about one of the publications that I brought with me, which I think is, um, yeah, I'll say it. It's like the, the best thing I've ever released with an artist. Um, it's called Women's Hands in My Family Album. It's by artist Maria Tenant. Um, and it's a collection of uh, vernacular uh, photography from her grandfather. So the images are sourced from the 1950s, 60s, and 70, 70s in Valencia, Spain. And a little background for what was going on in Spain at the time was there is, um, it was during the Franco, uh, Franco dictatorship. Um, so what Maria, so she had been using these images a lot to um, kind of illustrate um, different um, moments of touch, um, talking about the domestic space, um, 
and really trying to activate this archive in a different way. Um, so the resulting images um, sh yeah, show moments of this touch, the domestic um, moments of intimacy, um, especially during this like unstable political time, which I think we released this like shortly after the election of Donald Trump, and I thought it was a really great way to illustrate um, that beauty still exists even when there's a lot of like fucked up shit happening like in in society and in the world like there's still beautiful moments that are happening every day and just like a reminder of that beauty because it's hard to be bogged down or depending on actually how um, integrated you are with these issues too um, it's just nice to remember that as a as a, a form of resistance too so it's like I've I did a series of works that, actually I'll show that coming up too talking about like radical softness as a boundless form of resistance too so thinking about um, vulnerability as being something uh, as a radical act is something that I like to I think about often um, so these next resulting images are um, from the show that I recently did in January of this year at sediment arts in Richmond Virginia so I've been doing this project called the gender fail archive project where I have been inviting artists, curators, librarians, um, and other engaged publics to go into my library of publications. So all of the publications in my library aren't gender fail publications, they're not things that I've released, but they're content that I picked up at book fairs that have been donated to me from friends that I bought at places like Printed Matter or other um, stores and curatorial, you know, platforms and galleries um, dedicated to artist books. So it's so I was trying to rethink of how objects are archived and how they're presented with the project too. So every so the so the books are only included in the archive when they're selected. Um, basically, in these kind of like um, pseudo studio, but they're basically like a studio visit or a session. So generally, um, people spend anywhere from thirty minutes to an hour browsing through my collection. Um, and then with part of this project too, it was also a reaction to being like, I'm getting, I have like hundreds of books now like it's like it felt very like selfish for me just to like hide them in my studio and not present them so um, so as another facet of the project I invited um, artists to make these like I call them sculptural displays I'm trying to find like a better terminology for this but sculptural displays that act as contemporary sculptures so they don't need to necessarily hold books but they do have this other function within their design so this is a um, a sculpture by artist um, Hallie McNeil. Um, who, so, so everyone that I've basically done this project with has some connection to VCU. So this was a VCU sculpture graduate student that graduated last year. Um, here's a, a close-up too. So this object has a function, but also is still a contemporary object that reflects Hallie's process too, which is really great. So when I like, um, so there's six of these. So three have been made, three are in process. So it's really just like getting these artists to be able to make an object that maybe they've wanted to make and haven't had a reason to make it in their own progress, um, pro uh, practice um, and give them the opportunity to make an object with um, some design functionality. So the, this is like one of my favorite ones. You can actually sit on this object, which I have an image coming up, and you can just look at zines. So they're these kind of like, not sexual, but it's a very, um, it's very tight like slit situation, but it's like very like kind of playful. It's like. Yeah, so it's like a way for you to like look at um, these zines and also sit on this object. So it kind of looks like a really hard object. And this is by artist um, uh, uh, Evan Galbecca. Um, so here's just kind of another one too. Um, and here's another sculpture that was uh, released uh, through this project too by Colin Klockner. So just thinking of different ways for publications to interact with these sculptures and really just trying to bring some life into how publications are displayed in spaces like like sediment is a gallery but this i was invited in a part of this thing called a storefront feature so it's kind of similar to actually this in some ways too where it's giving it's a series of programming that's dedicated to projects that have some form of commerce within them so it was really great to be able to do a, a project at a gallery that wasn't like you know put work in the gallery so it's just a kind of like front storeroom space um so um, currently the work is on display at um, the International Center of Photography in um, New York City at their library. So it's, it's actually, I feel like this work um, really resonates the most when it's in a space like a library. So it's like, I don't know, like the library, especially this library is very mundane looking. So these, these objects really assert themselves in the space too. And it's kind of this space where you can like interact within this library and kind of have a different experience. So um, I'm also working with them on the series called Querying the Collection, where we're inviting outside um, artists, curators, or artists as curator, curator as artist, 
to um, curate from within the ICP collection to highlight works by um, queer folks and people of color, um, which there's not a lot, um, unfortunately. So we're doing this as a way to um, also instigate and try to get acquisitions for the library too, so there can be more diversity and really highlight the works that they do have. So um, yeah, so it's nice being able to like work with them too and collaborate on a larger scale. So this work will be installed in the library until um, about July, I think it's July or August. Um, and this is actually part of my like thesis work um, uh, with my uh, graduate degree that I'll be getting hopefully be getting in the spring. Um, so it's like people interacting with it too. So you can actually, it's actually really comfortable. Um, so you can kind of see more. Um, this photo was sent to me, I don't know if it was staged, it kind of looks staged a little bit, but it's still, um, I still like it anyway. I didn't include this other image, but there is like an image of like a child by Hallie's um, sculpture, like like touching and interacting with it. And it was like so amazing. Like, I don't know, like I was going to include it, but I forgot. Um, and this is just one other, so, I guess on a tangent, so with Gender Fail, like with the Archive Project, I'm interested in different ways of thinking about disseminate, dissemination um, when thinking about like being a press. And, and I actually don't use the term Gender Fail Press anymore because I want to do more than just this project being a press. It really is like a, a curatorial project in some way. Actually, no, I don't like the word curating either. Um, it's like a, a program, I, yeah, that's why I use the word program initiative because curating is like, I don't know, that has a baggage that I don't want to deal with. Um, uh, but anyway, so it's like nice to be able to do other programming, um, but um, I guess I'm awkwardly transitioning into my own work right now because it's like, and that's, I guess that's one connection. It's like gender fail is kind of this like collaborative, but also like ultimately personal practice. Um, so I like made a typeface based off the protest, based off this protest sign from the gay liberation movement. So I like was really struck by like the phrase mother nature as a lesbian, which I've kind of used, um, a lot, and I'm actually doing a writing right now responding to like the statement Mother Nature is a lesbian and what that means now, especially with everything going on with the Me Too movement and especially everything going on with um, the, the toupee Donald Trump, I'm trying to not say Donald Trump with, with him, you know, doing all, the, you know, going out of the Paris Climate Accord. So just kind of this intersection between like how, uh, especially white men in power treat women, but also how they treat the environment in these, um, in these spaces, but that's something I'm kind of still working on. But, um, but anyway, so I like made the made this downloadable font, which if you go to my website, anyone can download this. It's not very functional, but um, <laughs> but it, but it, but it's not meant to be, you know. So it's like, and I've used it in different ways. So it works really well when you use it with other letters. So like when you use it with like boring old um, uh, type, because um, I don't know what type this is, future or something like that. But it really like asserts itself when it's next to other characters too. So it really is something to be used as like a title or like to really um, accentuate. So I did kind of these series of prints too, just because I had been using this typeface for L2, but I always was using it with other people's words. So I actually just um, came up with just some things that I um, that were re that resonated with me. So maybe like ethics or what have you. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of like, and also thinking about like, I guess a lot, of, I'm not really a graphic designer. I just, when I want to do something, I just do it. But um, I, I, a lot of designers, when they have like, make a new typeface, they do like a type book. So this is like my reaction to doing a type book um, while using things that's actually been used used for. So I have a risograph machine and I always, um, if anyone contacts me, I um, let people use it for free. Um, I have like paper that they can use too, but if, if folks just bring paper, they can um, use the machine whenever um, they contact me. So, um, so these are just like some advertising things that I've done for to talk about that that program. So, is it, and this is one of the publication that's going to be on view until um, July. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's all I included. I guess I can go a little bit slower. So. Words, words. You can look. Yeah, but it's it. There's and there's extra copies for sale too if you are interested. Um, and there's a. Oh, there's also so. Um, maybe there's one last thing I'll talk about with my use of this typeface. I was in. I've been taking a lot of courses in graphic design because I don't know anything about it and want to learn more. But um, so VCU, um, like a lot of universities, pays their adjuncts horribly. So like. For a three credit class, you only got paid $2,300, which is, you know, ridiculous. Like a lot of people only adjunct and like, I think I made more as a TA than they did as an adjunct. I was actually in a situation, yeah, I was paid $5,000 for the course 
and the person teaching with me was only paid 2300 because they were an adjunct so um, so anyway so there's been a lot of like organizing going on too so I with my user graph machine and in collaboration with my peers in graphic design we made a series of posters this is just one this is a poster that I designed and made and um, uh, VCO has this like slogan make it real um, and I realized that I like usability instead of make it a reality which is funny um, uh, but um, which act so I made this like really fast too so it kind of actually shows like you know when you're doing something in the sense of urgency too you just need to get your ideas out as fast as possible and sometimes use a word that you didn't mean to use um, but but anyway so this was one of the pro signs used for um, the series of rallies that we had to um, so just again so using it again for this form of protest too seemed really um, important and fruitful doing that but um, and through like the actions too, they like raised it from eight hundred dollars a credit to a thousand dollars a credit, which is still like um, garbage, but um, it's better than eight hundred, I guess. So, um, so it's just like one use. And then in the back, it says a little bit more about the typeface, and then a, a link to download it. And here's a scan of like my fingerprints on the book. So, I think I'll stop there for for the presentation part of this talk. Thanks, Brett. No, pr no problem. All right, so moving on to part two, um, we're going to have a short conversation, and I have a few questions to ask you. I mean, I'm going to keep myself on a timer so that we can open up the audience questions uh, before too long. But Great. I kind of wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the like, inciting incident or gender fail. As far as I understand, this is uh, a project that's about two years old. Yeah. Um, which is a sh very short timeline to be incorporating all these different aspects of the project from curatorial work to publishing, archiving, mm -hmm. um, and just all like the, the community work that you've been doing. So I'm wondering how, uh, or like what made you want to start a project like this and what made it work for you in graduate school? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> it's hard, um, making it work in graduate school. <laughs> But I really, I started Gender Fail mainly just because of like a response to the like lack of, and, and it does exist definitely in like um, queer publishing projects too, but a lot of, not that everyone identifies as queer necessarily, but there's a lot of like content, especially even going to places like the New York Art Book Fair, which is like, you know, like um, fit uh, cisgender white gay men, just like making work that's just a perpetuate perpetuation of this body type. So I just really created this project as like wanting to like really think about like different ways that queer art can manifest and really have a more, um, I don't know, just bring in different types of conversations with what um, queer publishing can be. Um, so it really was just a reaction to not seeing what I wanted in the world. And like projects like this definitely exist. Like it's not like I'm like the only one. Um, like a friend of mine runs this uh, project called Pedagorn Press um, and they just release Edie Fakes new. Yeah. Um, and you obviously, you know, Caroline, right? Yeah, Caroline's great. Yeah, she's amazing. So it's like these things exist, you know, so it's like a press run by a queer woman making like work that's like not comic based, but definitely more illustrative. It's just like that, you know, and like doing these fairs, like she's one of like her and like also this, who I mentioned earlier, this artist, Nicole Killian, who did, who does this project, ish, Issues. Yes. I should know this, yeah, Issues. Um, or I Needed Voice, like it's, she said, uh, this is kind of a small tangent, but she was just talking about people coming up to her being like, are you in the right section? Because a lot of times they put a lot of the gay or queer publishers in one one row, and like a lot of people come up to her, it's like, are you in the right section? And she's like, yeah, I'm in the right section, you know? So it's like, that is even a reaction to, to thinking that like, like queer art is like a certain way, or like, you know, like a really a lack of like, um, of different ways that that can be deployed. Um, and question about doing this in a short period of time. So one thing that I've like, I've been doing just a lot of writing in my practice and I'm gonna do like a series of writing on this idea of like queer amateurism. So it's like, you know, making that typeface or being an archivist. Like it's kind of this like not needing to, to be a master at something to do it anyway and doing it with any resources or means necessary. Cause everything I do is like scrappy and I'm surprised I've gotten away with a lot of like <laughs> my my little knowledge of doing any of these things too but there's yeah there's something I've been just thinking about this idea of like of not striving towards mastery like I really just want to do work um, with any needs that I have you know and even with the collaborations like um, 
uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, and doing it in grad school, I basically like merged my practice with gender fail. I like resisted it at first too, thinking like gender fail is one thing, and my my artwork or my practice is another. But I realized it's actually just the same thing. So I've just like found ways to incorporate both um, together. So a lot of the projects and the work that I do, or when I especially when I apply to things, it's I apply under gender fail always now. So. Um, Unless I'm invited to do, actually, I'm only invited to do things under gender fail, so, um, <laughs> so that's the only, yeah. That actually does lead into my next question. Um, I wanted to ask you about the concept of authorship and how you do separate yourself or include yourself in gender fail. We were mm -hmm. talking a little bit before this yeah. um, about that separation between your own work and gender fail as a larger project. Yeah. But when do you when do you choose to publish? Uh, your own zines and your own work versus cho choosing to work with other artists or what's it's where where are you in gender fail yeah so I, like with starting the project in 2015 i like started it like hoping that i would eventually not release anything of my own work but as i started to do this more so I, essentially i just like contact artists that i like and invite them to do a publication and i don't really like deadlines because i feel like I don't need to have deadlines because there's nothing like I mean there's certain events I always like tell artists I'm like well if you want your book to be featured at this event we can try to do it for this but I don't try to like force anyone like I kind of like these projects to kind of happen organically so releasing things is really infrequently and like collaboration is kind of bad sometimes in this way of just like it's really infrequent so um, I've been so but with releasing my own work it's kind of I don't know I used to be really hard on myself be like this has to be just in service of other people but um, it kind of does blur the like personal and the collaborative, um, uh, and it, it's something that I think I'm continually negotiating. But one thing that I do do, like for example, on my website, I don't list my name because I don't want it to be like about oh Brett Simnick or like you know just like me doing the project. So I try to like keep my name out of it as much as possible, so that people can focus on the content more than like the the naming of it. So like when they see a publication, if it happens to be mine, great. You know, then I don't mind you know being like oh I like your your publication. It's like great you know and this isn't to like not have accountability for the project too so I'm definitely like able to be contacted just more for um, giving highlight to other people and not just being about me uh, even though I think I am a part of it you know I've tried to find other people to collaborate with for this project but I think because it's been so personal like it's kind of hard to do that because it'd be kind of like hard to ask someone to be a part of this thing that has been so me for a while even though I've been mostly releasing other work from other people and like highlighting other projects but it's still I think I would have to like collaborate on something else um, so I think the collaboration happens like with doing the archive project or doing individual publications but the umbrella um, project I think will always have me in it in this way and I think that's fine yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is gonna be the the last like MFA question that I'll ask you. Um, yeah, go, go for it. <laughs> but I'm just curious about uh, producing zines and DIY works and this idea of approaching things to produce them by any means necessary, regardless of having a mastery of them or not. Yeah. Um, and how that works within an MFA program where you entered as a printmaker. And to some degree, there's like a different, there, there's several histories of printmaking. Yeah. But where do you see uh, zine making sitting within that or um, within the institution yeah, yeah yeah I mean thankfully I'm in a program that is not medium specific so there's no um, there's no conception of what I should be doing uh, which is really great so I mean for a while I did resist that so everything I would show and critique or like to my peers or visiting artists would be different from gender fail but um, through conversations like a lot of people were like, oh, I'm like really actually more interested in what you're doing and that with that platform too. So it's actually like through the negotiation with <laughs> the institution that I was like, you know, you really should focus on this because obviously you're more like interested in this. It's like, yeah, I don't like, I don't want to make art objects. Like I really, I really don't care that much. It's like, I'm not really interested in making like precious art objects that can only be um, shown in galleries and like sold. Not, I don't know, just like, I, I really like the multiple and I, I, don't, I may, maybe said this already too, but really liking the accessibility of printmaking or print media, of having a risograph machine, of um, the history of printmaking. So um, it has been just kind of, it is frustrating sometimes too, just like with my peers, like in MFA programs, people name drop artists all the time. And it's like really, I don't know, I, is this, it's like sometimes a tool of just like 
of performing knowledge or something like that that I'm like really in, uninterested in. So sometimes they're like, you know, those artists. I'm like, I don't actually, and that's fine. You know, like I know the artists that I know, like a bunch of publishers that I like, and, and not not that I have like no breadth of like art history or contemporary art, which I, I I do like consuming it, but I don't like to name drop. So it's like something about you know like that's why I like zine you know like I like the anonymous and, but thankfully it's like it's encouraged I mean it, it might be different in other programs but obviously yeah. I'm putting the work into it and things are happening so it has been nice to do like things in the public sphere to like um, put my money where my mouth is because it is also limited, limiting though too because a lot of what I what I do is public and it's hard to like show that in a crit or in like a I do feel like limited by that institution in a lot of ways, but obviously all this work is like, especially a lot of collaborations that happen, happen because of the graduate program, so, yeah. I think one of the things that's also just really interesting with scenes is their ability to work uh, inside and outside of like art communities or academic communities. Um, and you've had the archive program at like ICP mm -hmm. uh, in New York and Sediment uh, gallery in Richmond. Are there other venues you'd like to approach that are kind of outside of these institutions? Yeah. I mean, I I really want to show at this space in Philly, Vox Populi. I applied for an open call. I like love that space. So it's like, you know, like a gallery, but it's an artist run. So it's an artist membership, ar artist run space. I used to part of, be a part of this space called Little Berlin, which they're not amazing, you know, problematic, <laughs> very, you know, white and straight but um but like so so I do like I, I do want to so I'm not anti-gallery but it's like I'm very specific with what I apply to or what I want where I want to show the work because especially thinking about like existing in a gallery I think the archive project is something that I want to do and it's mostly I mean the whole aim of that project is obviously to you know archive in a different way and present publication you know like present you know these displays in a different way but it's ultimately about like um giving a platform to other publishers like myself that I'm like really excited about and I want to share it with too and also presenting like something like a zine or like a publication as something on the same level or the same consideration as a art object that you would sell for like ten thousand dollars so it's like you know like bridging that where it's like like it does become political like what becomes in a gallery or like what is for sale in a gallery or what is the function of a gallery because if you go to Chelsea or New York it's like literally those like Every, most of the galleries in Chelsea's are like storerooms. Like that's that's what it is. Like ultimately, it's like there's good work that happens, but it's literally just about people forget not forget, but it's like they don't want to try to think about the commerce aspect of it and like who can afford these objects and who like I don't know. Obviously, the con I don't need to like talk about this because it's you know the contemporary art world's fucked. You know, like you yeah. know, it's like way for rich people to move around money. You know, like <laughs> so it's like thinking about like when I con do work with galleries or if I and this is to say if I have the opportunity to so not to feel entitled to like doing that with my work, but like if I do have the opportunity to work with some of these different spaces like Vox maybe in the future or other spaces, like I do want to do it differently and do it in a way that feels um, accessible to folks going in the space so I'm so I, so I'm still thinking about the ethics of what it means to like be in those spaces and yeah. who's invited or who feels comfortable in those spaces too and just a lot of like folks don't feel comfortable in in white cubes and showrooms yeah and I don't like my big thing that I'll talk about all the time is uh, the book object and zines in general as a, an object that anyone can really understand and know how to work yeah and it's a very different feel than walking into a gallery space or a white cube or sometimes it can just be really confusing as to what's going on and how you're supposed to act in that space. Mm -hmm. um, and that's more a comment, not actually a question. I yeah. do actually have a question. Um, but I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about commerce and we were talking beforehand about, about your zines and how you try to sell them or not sell them, potentially bar barter for them. And yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you do that with, with zines? Like, what's, what's your approach to actually distributing these and dispersing them? Mm -hmm. um, and what is like the commercial side to that? Or how do you how are you really thinking about that in your in the work that you're trying to put out? Yeah, um, one thing I do like doing is like submitting publications to be on sale at places like Printed Matter and like um, Art Metropole and like Toronto and all of those types of spaces. Be just as like thinking about like 
almost like sending the publications there as like on view even though they're on sale but it's more about like I don't actually care about the money that it brings in because it really doesn't obviously bring in money I mean people like print's dead but it's just more like print doesn't you don't really make money but it's more about like kind of rethinking about what those spaces can be and like thinking of it as a way to like get the content out there that if you know people aren't buying these objects they can still view them um uh you said something about like not touching the art object that's one thing that depending on where especially the where publications are, where work is in galleries, people are like, oh, I can't touch this. Like, yeah. And I like want people to touch these things so so much. Like, I can't wait for, especially through this archive, for these objects to really like feel lived in and have this history of use. Like, I'm like so excited for that. Like, every like, if it's teared, if someone throws up on them, I don't know what happened. <laughs> There's like a meme of like someone throwing up in a gallery that's like really funny to me. But anyway, you know, so it's like these objects having a history and not thinking of, you know, even just thinking of when you have books, you know, like in your collection like you want to take care of them and you want them to like last for a while too but I think there is something also something about the visceral aspect of like having objects that like have this history of use and maybe eventually they will be archived when they're like truly archived when they're like about to fall apart or something like that so I'm like really thinking about touch with this um, yeah. and also like selling publications bartering like if someone just want something like if anyone doesn't have money and really wants something just let me know I'll just you can have it except for maybe one of the publications because we only have 20 left and I kind of want to either sell it or um, submit it to like our other archives too just because I, I don't think the artist wants to do it again so besides one publication if anyone doesn't have the resources or, or money for it and wants it just let me know um, but yeah bartering too I'm also thinking about um, I don't know through conversations that I had with some of my peers and mentors, it's like thinking about like when one is generous and one gets something in return too. So not, you know, so being generous sometimes is very exhausting, but also been in the same way too, like taking is also, you know, obviously messed up, but you know, it's like exhausting yeah. another way too, always be taking giving. So it's like thinking about with like, say the exchange, like, you know, like what is the exchange for the publication? Like it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't necessarily have to be an object, but thinking about what these exchanges could be. Um, and obviously I mostly sell the publications at this point just because I don't have a lot of money and the money goes into like making more of the things but um, if I'm ever having the opportunity to have like be grant funded like I, I want to think of different ways of like how something is given or taken or exchanged yeah, yeah. I'm gonna ask you one more question then I'll turn it over to the audience because I know that there's several people here that work with libraries and archives and zines and they might have some questions but you don't have to if you don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't pressure any individuals. Um, but I wanted to hear you talk about a, a project that you did with Gender Fail that is like not necessarily your favorite, but like what's an exciting thing that you give to someone at a table to say like this is really a good object that that I'm about or something to truly uh, personify what Gender Fail is. I mean, I did this publication with this artist Liz Barr who lives in Philadelphia, um, and she. Um, I just saw her work, I don't know where, at maybe Ulysses or something in the Philly art scene. So a lot of like these collaborations also happen, just like being in a community and meeting people and talking to people. But she releases, we released this publication, well it's her work, we, I released her publication, Body Works, and it's like this really great publication that, I don't know, I, it's, it's been great being able to have it at different shops and like really like even getting testimonials from people. So it's like talking about like, um, body positivity, like um, talking about um, beauty um, uh, conceptions in society too. And she's this really good analyst of like talking about different um, artworks too. So it's really specific to like uh, the representation of women in society, especially in the art worlds with these, these expectations of, you know, beauty standards and um, also like it touches on ableism, you know, like a lot of these really, I think important things. So that was like the first project that really like changed how I'm thinking about what type of work I want to put out and definitely yeah. want to do things that are more like arts writing or like you know like not just like visual things like I'm getting bored like I'm very suspicious of images I'm well I'm suspicious of photographs um, especially photographs trying to present or represent like especially like like a queer body I've been th thinking a lot about that too how like a photograph is very suspicious for like a body in constant transition or constant fluidity and how like yeah. uh, in like a year or a month or even a day that photograph can be like a disservice or a disjustice to like what a sub 
uh, identity can be. So anyway, so that's like, so anyway, just thinking I'm really like into language and the specificity language has. But that being said, like language isn't always accessible to people or like, you know, it's always, it's written in a way that it, there isn't an access built into that. And also even just in a Western context being like everything in English too. So it's like, yeah, they're obviously yeah. that's not like a noble cause, but um, really just thinking of different ways that like wor with working with artists, not, you know, like releasing really dense things, but at least accessible with the writing and the content or trying to, yeah, moving forward as much as possible. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank um, you. So yeah, again, that's all of my questions. Does anyone have any questions for Brett? Stephanie? Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't mind uh, standing up so we can actually get this on. Thank you. Hi. So you mentioned the role, or we saw examples of how your work has fit into libraries. Mm -hmm. What role does the archive play for you, though, in your own work? Or maybe does the archive or do libraries and that idea of deep areas of knowledge, or broad areas of knowledge? How does that work? Yeah, so one, one part of um, the archive that, so once, once publications are archived, I'm um, creating like a information sheet. So like doing, I, I don't know if this is how every archivist does or libraries, but I'm sure there's a database. So I'm basically creating a database that is tracking um, the publication, like who released it, how many pages, how it's printed. So um, that information isn't on the website yet, but I'm in, currently in the process of like actually archiving. So this is like with the queer amateurism. I don't actually know how most people do this. Like I've been looking at Paul Suelis's A Library of the Printed Web, if anyone knows that project as an example. Um, so basically just doing a Google Sheets like that. So it's actually a lot of it's like based on that. So it's a project that he did where he basically like um, created an archive of um, like publications or situations where the web was printed in some form, or at least that's my understanding of the project. Um, so yeah, so I think doing once the archive is made, it's doing the labor to to really like um, do service to the publications, meaning like having the information ready and available for people if they ask. Because the website's kind of like funky; it's meant to be like not super comprehensive. Like you'll see a, a an actual scan of the publication that was picked, and then there's usually one like that link that either sends you to a PDF of the publication or a place to buy them. Or in one case, I had a publication that I don't really love, but it was picked. So like, I have an article to like a criticism of that work and that artist. So um, yeah, so I think just like once it's archived, really just thinking of access, because I don't, I don't want this thing to be so art in this way that it's impenetrable, but really thinking about access of how one um, finds out information about what's in the archive. Yeah, so maybe library sciences, that's what, right? That's a, that's a thing, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm trying to do that, but in my own way, yeah. Anyone else? Uh, in this scene, mm -hmm. you adopted this, co-opted this font, yes. or, or, or took these letters and, and made a font. Yeah. Right. So I was curious, um, and you you mentioned in here, I think it says something to the effect that um, uh, this typeset can only be used by queer people, people of color, are used in need for a protest. Yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating. So um, are there other typefaces that you identify as queer typefaces, I'm wondering, or is there a history of that thinking of the typeface as a voice or a body in that way, and if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm actually, so at VCU there's this um, design type designer who's really incredible called Kelsey Elder, um, and he knows so much about type. And I have been trying to find, so like I've been ma making these typefaces obviously like that. I've made two others since then too, um, which is like another investigation. But I'm trying to find another typeface made by other queer gra like um, type designers. And I asked Kelsey, because I'm like, oh, you know so much about type. And I'm like, I really want to find another open source typeface. So since mine's open source too, wanting to not pay for it, not because I don't want to spend the money, but I think it's really important conceptually that the typeface be open source. Um, so I was like talking to him and he's like, yeah, there's really not a lot. So it's like, so, or like he was saying something that like a lot of, I'm sure there are a lot of like gay or queer or lesbian type designers, but it's not something that like is as widely known or it's something that's kept personal too. So I found one that I w actually was, so the type and the azine thing that I did is made by a queer type designer. 
So I'm just going to use it because it's the only one I could find. So, so again, using that to ma to match it with um, these really unfunctional typefaces too. So finding like basically like branding or finding a typeface that I'm going to use for like most of my texts. But um, yeah, so it's like I think I'm I, I think through this project I'm trying to like um, find that history and like I'm not really a graphic designer, but again, you know, like I'm just doing it, or I'm not a type designer. Um, I didn't even know like there there's a thing called kerning the spaces in between. I didn't know that. So for for the first like year that I had the Mother Nature is Lesbian, there's a lot, there's big spaces, and I'm like I don't know, I don't know why that is. You know, I started, so I fixed it since then. But it's like you know, again, I'm not trying to make a perfect, a masterful object because there's enough of those already. When I, someone said I like throw a wrench into the system or something like yeah. that. You know, and I think in some ways that typeface does. But I think also it's super aesthetic. You know, it's like, um, and obviously the typeface too is like. A collaboration like some of the letters are pulled from that sign and a lot of them are imagined as how they would look to and not very well not imagined very well but um, but I think it works yeah yeah I think do we have one more question yeah um, I like uh, hearing about all the ways to talk about accessibility mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you were to imagine your ideal space for distributing mm -hmm. the zines, what that would be? Yeah. If it's a, like a fixed space or something that's more nomadic or changeable? Yeah, my, my goal with the project is to have like a brick and mortar in a community that um, doesn't have something like this. Because it's like I am playing with the idea of moving to New York, but I don't know if I like if New York needs another one of these. I mean, of course it does. New York is a really big place too, but yeah, I think my dream is just to be in a community that like, um, I feel like I could be a service to or a resource to, um, cause I think that's ideal. But I think like having, not necessarily like owning property, but I think having a home base is really important. That, that's something I haven't had with the project. Cause that's not to say that the project won't exist in other places, but I think it's really important to like really locate a community that, um, that you feel you know, a part of, um, and that the project can serve. Because um, I, again, but I think it will be this push and pull of like, you know, being nomadic and being um, fixed, you know, like how I think of queerness, you know, there's moments, you know, that influx, but then there's moments that you're not, you know, that, I don't know, so it's like this push and pull of, yeah, of those two things, but I don't know when that will be, but yeah, so. Oh. Thank you, Brent. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Yeah.